Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a very special guest. I'm delighted to be welcoming Kaven Peterson, who is the co-founder of changingaging.org and has spent over a decade working closely with Dr. Bill Thomas. He is the chief operation officer for the Minka Home Project, which we just heard about in the previous episode with Dr. Thomas. And Kaven also has a special interest and special expertise in home care and in dementia. In 2015, he founded Harvest Home Care, an innovative home care agency based in Montana, and he has also helped spearhead Changing Aging's Disrupting Dementia movement. Most recently, he worked with Dr. Bill Thomas, the Changing Aging team, and community stakeholders to develop a plan to create a special dementia-friendly Minka Village of Hope in Pennsylvania. So through all these projects, Kaven is really pushing things forward when it comes to changing aging. So I'm delighted to have him with us today to tell us more about the work he's done, especially on dementia-inclusive community design, the upcoming Village of Hope, and other ways that he is helping to change aging and disrupt dementia. Kaven, welcome to the show. Thank you, Leslie. I am delighted to be here. We just had Bill Thomas on the show for a second time, but you actually have worked with him for quite a long time, and you helped him found Changing Aging. And so I thought it would be great to start with learning a little bit more about you and how did you become interested in aging issues? How did you first get to know Dr. Thomas, and what led the two of you to found ChangingAging.org? I imagine if you uh, work in this field, my story will be very familiar. Most of the very passionate advocates working to reform aging and long-term care uh, have, you know, very pivotal personal experiences um, related to aging. And for me, I literally grew up inside of nursing homes. So I grew up on a cul-de-sac next door to a nursing home in Missoula, Montana. And this nursing home has been, uh, since CMS has been collecting quality data on nursing homes, it has been the worst ranked nursing home in Montana since the early 1980s. Oh, no. As a child, it was my favorite place to hang out. Uh, I wandered the halls. I had everybody there was my grandparent, my buddy, my wife, in some cases, <laughs> my parent, whatever, they, whatever role they, I filled for them. That's where I hung out. Those are the people I played with, and, and I loved it. And coincidentally, my mother worked in another nursing home. And mm. in fact, she just uh, retired as director of a, another nursing home in Missoula, Montana, last May, having worked there most of my life. And all three of my sisters, I have three sisters, they actually grew up and, and went into the field and uh, worked uh, in my mom's nursing home, other long-term care environments. One of my sisters is a nurse. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the work I'm now doing with my sisters in Missoula, Montana. But I had that grounding. Now, of course, I did grow up and I stopped playing in the nursing home when I grew up in high school. I stopped, I stopped going there. It wasn't cool. It smelled funny. I learned to not like the place where my mom worked. I personally didn't want to go into that field at the time. Uh, I set my sights on other goals. I, I traveled abroad. Um, I went uh, left Montana, went to college back east in Massachusetts. And ended up in journalism. And I had a very exciting career working in Washington, D.C. for an organization called Stateline, where I was just really lucky enough to do really great reporting on social justice issues that I was passionate about. So I spent most of my 20s as a leading advocate writing about gay rights, immigration rights, education reform, criminal justice reform. And I was very passionate about that work. But at the same time, if you guys remember the 2000s, the, the, uh, there was a big shift in the journalism industry and a lot right. of disruption with the new media. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it just looked like not a great long-term career. So I started looking for other opportunities. And uh, about 12 years ago, 
I saw a job pop up at University of Maryland. And they were looking for somebody with some new media skills to work as a communication director for a new program on aging. So this was the Erickson School at UMBC, and it was just about to be launched. So I thought, sounds interesting. I had written about aging policy from a state government perspective, and it was the usual very declinist silver tsunami approach, the same stuff they've been talking about for decades, populations getting older, it's going to bankrupt the nation, state governments, they're going to lose all of their best employees, they're going to retire, all gloom and doom, negative stuff. Right. So I thought, I'm an expert on this stuff. I grew up in the field. I know how awful nursing homes are. <laughs> I know that everything's awful about aging and how it's going to ruin the country. So I'm going to be great. Applied for the job. They're very excited to have me. I, I got the job. On my first day, I was uh, in, in new employee orientation with a lot of the other new staff. And I was paired up at a table this guy called Dr. Bill Thomas. Mm. Now, I had done some research. I knew that he had been recruited as like a founding faculty member. He was a big deal. And what I had read had blown my mind. And I was like, this, this guy is incredible. And it was my first introduction to the concept of changing the culture in, inside of long-term care environments. And at that time, uh, the Greenhouse Project was a radical concept, unproven, Everybody said it would never work. Super disruptive. And, you know, tell tell us again, really briefly, the Greenhouse Project. Which one was that? Yeah, sure. For the so, audience? Dr. Bill Thomas got his start as the founder of the Eden Alternative, which is really a program, philosophy, education, designed to help deinstitutionalize long-term care environments, whether it's in a nursing home or actually in your home. We find that the care environments in our country have become highly medicalized and institutionalized. And Bill Thomas has been the leader in deinstitutionalizing the environments. Around the year 2000, 2001, he came up with a concept that was supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to basically reimagine an alternative to nursing homes. And he had the license to imagine anything he wanted. And so he came up with the idea that you could provide skilled nursing in a smaller environment. So rather than a 120 bed nursing home, you could create small homes for no more than like 10 elders that would have a private bedroom, a private bathroom, and all of the rhythms of daily life would be built around what matters most. Eating, coming together at a big hearth and enjoying good food with the people that live and care for you. So uh, as a radical model, a bunch of progressive nonprofits around the country embraced it, tested it, piloted it. And right around that time that I met him, we were getting interesting, really interesting, interesting, compelling outcomes. And so it was my job. I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but um, that's the story that I started to read about when I met him. Right. So we sat down. We're doing some like icebreaker activities, talk about what's the mission of the school and you know, what are some ways we can frame the exciting work we're going to do. And literally in that first activity that we did, I came up with the tagline, changing aging. Oh, like, and he thought, simple. I have found the person I need to work with. <laughs> From that day forward, we started the scheme and, you know, cook up ideas. Uh, if you get to know Bill, he's just a restless, you know, ceaseless innovator, always looking to come up with new ideas. Oh, yeah. He seems to be an idea factory. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's incredible. Actually, his, his business is called Idea Farm, his, oh. his side farm. <laughs> and so we started to think about, uh, we spent the first couple of years, let's take this concept of changing aging and how can we create, how can we use these new tools to create a network of all, all these people doing good work around the world and this culture change movement. So our goal was to take these, this awesome work, this person-centered human design work in the culture change movement and introduce it to the rest of the world in an effort to just get more people engaged in the system, in, in the issues, and to connect people. Right. So and I'd say these are the early days of the, inter of the internet and blogging and that kind of stuff, social media. I can tell you right now, um, it's looking like a lot of these <laughs> platforms and tools have some negative side effects that we need to address. But at the time, there was a lot of idealism and a lot of excitement about what was possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it sounds like, you know, the idea was also to bring some of this energy and innovation, you know, beyond nursing homes and long-term care to all these other 
aspects of, of aging and the aging experience and society. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, the potential is really infinite, you know, even if the platforms kind of change or we decide that maybe we should spend less time on certain platforms. So it's, it's been, I think, about 10 years now since you and Bill Thomas founded Changing Aging. So maybe briefly, like, what do you feel has, has changed in that time about our conversations about it? I know the two of you have worked really hard to try to change the story and the narratives around it. Mm-hmm. Before we go into, you know, your most recent projects related to the Village of Hope, I would love to hear from you just what, what you see as, you know, what kind of progress or changes you've noticed in the last 10 years. I'm excited to say that I have seen a ton of changes. Compared to the landscape 10 years ago and the conversations and the communities that existed focused exclusively on a positive view of aging and building communities and restoring some of the lost social capital that we've seen eroded over the decades. I am happy to say that I feel like things have evolved and changed dramatically. So if you look at what's happened in the past 10 years, first off, you've seen the culture change movement in the long-term care system has gone mainstream. Now there's a downside to that and that it's being kind of co-opted by some of the actors who are not really making the changes, Mm -hmm. but all the radical things we were talking about for decades are now considered mainstream. They're in the regulations for CMS, a lot of the, the, the better ideas, better practices, and people are becoming more familiar with this. Now, even in a broader and more exciting development We've seen the explosion of community-based movements around a positive view of aging. And so I'm looking at age-friendly communities, age-friendly community developments. Ten years ago, there was one age-friendly city in the United States, Portland, Oregon. Today, I've lost track. There's over 300, and dozens are joining uh, every month. Ten years ago, there was one village in Beacon Hill in Boston. And the village is a grassroots movement that has neighbors coming together to support each other in their community as they age. Yes, we actually had Andrew Sharlack, Berkeley professor who's been studying the village movement on the podcast. Yes. Talking about it. And yeah, he said that the movement has really grown because people are looking around and saying, hey, we want to create a community where we can be more positive about this and connect with each other. Yes, that's great. I've been deeply involved in that movement since it, since it went from Boston to a replication model, which was actually supported by the same community development bank that replicated the greenhouse model. Mm-hmm. So this has been, uh, this is, I, I say, one of the most exciting developments in terms of on the ground at the local level, communities starting to recognize these issues and starting to talk about and create a more positive future for how they want to age. And I think that's the most important part of the movement. Mm-hmm. So that's, I'm, I'm terrifically excited about that. And now if you go in just about any community, there's either kind of age-friendly coalitions or actions or villages happening, or people are talking about it and trying to get it off the ground. Right. Yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, thank you for that sort of overview, because it's true. I think I can sometimes get lost a little bit in the weeds of what's going on now. And it's so powerful to look back and see how far we've come. Yes. And absolutely. really inspiring and encouraging. Absolutely. Well, one of the many things that I love about the work that you and Changing Aging are doing is that it is so grounded in talking to people instead of about people, right? talking yes. to older adults and to people living with dementia and not just about them. And it seems to me that part of your, your process is often to host these, these workshops and these events where you really interact with people and listen to them. So could you tell us more about that kind of work and what you've been hearing from people and learning from people? Yes, that's, that, that is central to my work. And that's been central to I think the more successful elements of culture change, uh, not just Bill Thomas's work, but any of the successful movements to make long-term care more person-centered has always recognized that the conversation has to include the person you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So there's a precept in disability and aging advocacy called nothing about us without us. Mm-hmm. And that is, you cannot break that. That is an inviolable rule. Nothing about us without us. 
So for me personally, uh, you know, I started out as a sort of doing, you know, advocacy, uh, communication stuff for a lot of these different organizations, but I very quickly became passionate about the idea of taking the sort the kind of uh, person-centered work, person-centered design, participatory design concepts that Bill had been pioneering for many years and bringing those to community development. And so about five or six, I'm losing track, five or six years ago, I decided to move from the East Coast. I'd been living in Baltimore for a long time. Decided it was time to move to a new community. I want to come back to the West. And what I was really looking for was a chance to move into a community and get involved in some of these movements on a you know, personally. So I had been working on the village to village network replication model from a communication standpoint for a few years, but I really, I intentionally decided I'm going to move to a community where this grassroots activity is happening. So I looked all around and I'm very proud. I brag a lot about the decision that to go to Seattle because of the exciting things that were happening here. And mm -hmm. I came to Seattle and I moved into a neighborhood where not only was there a, a village organization that was being built, but there was this incredible effort underway to take the tools of participatory design thinking and to include people living with dementia to start to reclaim the experience and tell a new story about dementia. And so um, I got involved in a global network called Liberating Structures, which is an open source design thinking complexity science network that takes the best of design thinking and participatory design elements and creates structures that are accessible to anybody to use. So there's a whole global community. It just happens that two of the founders live in Seattle, so we're kind of the nexus of this movement. And I got involved in these community workshops that were including people living with dementia to take control of some of the interesting and, and very great activities that are available in Seattle. So a city like Seattle, we're just really lucky that like the Seattle Parks Department has had great engagement programs and activities uh, specifically for older adults and people living with dementia. So there are zoo walks and art walks and hikes and things like that. And then a lot of great nonprofit organizations that have adult day programs and great opportunities for people living with dementia specifically to get out and be active. But what we did was we said, how about the pe people living with dementia kind of take control of these activities and these, uh, the, the, these agendas and what's available? And they take control and, and they lead in terms of what kinds of things that they want to do. And mm. so we, uh, through this process, this group came up with their own name for their experience. And folks who follow Changing Aging might have heard, heard this term before. They called it Momentia. Mm. And the word came from <laughs> um, a couple folks, friends of mine living with dementia, were in like a caregiving type workshop learning about their experience from an expert who was rattling through the typical statistics, dire statistics about the growing rate of dementia. And Roger turned to his friend and he said, look, sounds like we've got momentum. Ah. <laughs> so came up with this term. So it's, it, momentum stands for living in the moment, you know, building a movement with momentum and creating a positive new story. So instead of this story of doom and gloom and lost personhood, it's, an, it's a story about connection and community, living in the moment and experiencing joy. So that's how I dipped my toes into this uh, work of community design and participatory mm -hmm. design. And I started to apply it to some of the other projects that we were working on. So we started to apply this to, at the, right about the same time, Bill was uh, getting ready to publish his book, Second Wind, and we were designing this tour to go around the country. And so one of the things I suggested is, while we're going around on tour, we need to bring together coalitions to support this tour and talk about these issues. So I, thought, I suggested that we convene these listening groups. And we're lucky enough to get underwriting from AARP, so every city we've been in, and we've been in 129 cities so far. Wow. Every city includes a lunch where we break bread, and then we convene a listening session where we use some of these participatory design activities to get people to engage and tell us what issues they're concerned about in their community. So what did they tell you? Give us a few examples. I'm so curious. 
So and also, I'm wondering, were have, they different uh, in different cities, or did you hear mostly the same things over and over again? Like good social scientists, we've got a little bit of data. Um, we've uh, had about 4,000 participants total. Mm-hmm. And we've tried a few different approaches, but the one thing that has been consistent is we always do an Ask Dr. Bill, what is the biggest issue in aging? Mm. And so we have a baseline for uh, 4,000 questions about what is the biggest issue in a- for around aging in your community. And the most common answer, the most common question uh, by a huge majority is what do we do about insufficient housing, unaffordable housing, housing that is not available for me when I'm older. So about 60% of the questions were related to housing insecurity, whether it's accessibility or financial uh, or affordability. So that was, there was no community that did not ask about housing. We got lots of other questions, lots of interesting questions about health and other aging related issues. But the types of people we were attracting, there's a little bit of bias here. These are people that are deeply involved in the system and and see what the issues are and see that one of the most pressing issues is housing insecurity in communities for older people. Right. Yeah. Because what's interesting is that that when you said that, I thought, well, that's so interesting because at the same time when they survey older adults – overwhelmingly they stay, they want to stay where they are as they get older. And so I hadn't been expecting that a lot of people would be asking for, for other housing. Or, or maybe also some people want help figuring out whether they can stay in their housing or how they could adapt their housing to make sure that it enables them to have the life they want to have even as they get older. Yeah, but I think what a lot of advocacy and what a lot of people experience is the inadequacy of the current housing and the lack of options to downsize or switch housing. Right. There are literally no, no options. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that we saw come up again and again. Right, right. Fascinating. And uh, any other things that, that came up? I know you said lots and lots of things came up, but anything else yes. that stood out? One of the exciting things that stood out that has been a, a, a huge trend and a growing trend over the past four years that we've been doing this the other hottest topic would be multi-generational engagement. Mm. So in every community we've gone to, people are talking about it, asking about it, and really what they're looking for is how do we shift away from a society that actively segregates people by age and ability and move towards a future where we're integrating people and we're moving towards putting elders back into the center of of our communities. And Mm. I'm very excited that people are talking about it I'm very excited that we're working on it, but I can say it's it's a big challenge. Yeah, yeah, because the story you told at the beginning of you as a child, you know, constantly in the nursing home, you know, or in an environment with exactly. people who were much older, that was really kind of exceptional. And I think, you know, and there are tons it's of rare. environments with a lot of older adults that are not nursing homes, where I think there are still relatively few children or young adults. Yes, exactly. It's so I think what we're recognizing is that segregating people, segregating elders, especially those who are living with frailty, living with cognitive change, separating them is just about from their communities and concentrating them is just about the worst thing we can do. It's just about the worst strategy we can do in terms of their well being and their ability to enjoy life. Now, it's efficient for delivering services and it's extraordinarily profitable. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, it, that's why it's difficult to shift away from that strategy, but it's proven pretty well proven that it is a, it's the worst thing that you can do for an individual. Right. Right. And also, I mean, I think even, you know, before people need services there, if we had more opportunities to have multi-generational engagement, at that time, it might be easier to continue it even when, if somebody does, you know, has reached a stage in their life when maybe they need some extra accommodation or services. You know, I'm actually thinking of, of um, we were uh, overseas a few years ago, and in this, this part of France, there's a cultural tradition to have a sizable party every year for people who are turning 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, or 100 because 100 years ago when you were 20, you would get conscripted for the military. And so the 20-year-olds started having a big party, you know, before they would have to go do their military service. And then when they were 30, they thought, let's have a reunion. 
And it eventually turned into this thing where people of all ages participate. And we attended some of those events, and I was struck by seeing people of all these different generations mm -hmm. celebrating together. Mm -hmm. And how this community does this every year. And how I felt that in the States, it was really only at weddings, <laughs> you know. Exactly. That you might see people of all different generations celebrating together. And here it was just kind of embedded in the social fabric. And people felt, you know, they would identify as, as being part of a number, which was, you know, the, the last year of your birth, right? You know, yes. the eight or seven or six, but that there are people of all generations there, right? You, you touched on a, actually a great line in one of our performances. It's that for a lot of people in our culture, in the American culture, as we get older, the only time that we get to interact intergenerationally and the only time that we get to dance as adults is at a wedding. Right. Yeah. And that is just a... That's wrong. Yeah, that, <laughs> so is, that is really a, a shame. Well, it's great that at least people were asking you about it, you know, because I feel like that's the so first is, yeah. step that they recognize that they, you know, yes. wanted it because that means they might then be able to help make it happen. They recognize it. And this is a critical issue around the emerging and growing a very fierce policy debate about how we look at services and entitlements and what we invest in our elders. And it's very, I, I'm a fierce person, I'm a fierce advocate of shifting away from this narrative that aging is something that's gonna, that's damaging our country, that's harmful to our future and it's gonna bankrupt our country. I categorically reject that. If we go down the same path we're on where we separate, segregate people and put them in institutions and care for them in the most expensive and profitable way possible, yes, that might bankrupt us. But if we can shift and pivot and look at this as our greatest accomplishment as a species, this incredible longevity, and if we can recognize that our success evolutionarily through the history of our species has been around multi-generational engagement, having taken care of our elders, having them at the center of our community, if we can begin to think about designing a future new communities that support people of all ages and abilities, we'll take care of them. We'll make it easier to take care of them, stronger social connections, better neighbors, make it easier to take care of folks, and we'll design better communities that are healthier and greater for everybody. So it's a win-win in my mind, and we are out there, and I feel like people are recognizing this and talking about this and looking for tools and ways to achieve it. Right, right, yeah. Well, great. I mean, such a such an important set of issues to address. So tell us more now about this, you know, specifically as relates to dementia, because I know you've done some some work, particularly where you were talking about uh, Momentia and mm -hmm. the innovations in Seattle, but it, you've also been building upon it. And this recent Village of Hope project builds upon that. So tell us more about that. Sure. And let me frame it this way. We've been talking a lot about the consequences that we're dealing with, the negative consequences of aging, segregation, isolation, and trying to change that and movements to try to change that. So let's, you know, those are symptoms. Let's go right to the core. What is the main problem that we're talking about? How is it that we treat people this way in our society? So for a long time, we have been saying, we've been arguing that the problem is social ageism, cultural ageism. So rampant ageism in our culture. There's, you know, we can argue about this, we can talk about this, but I don't think you can deny that we live in a, a hyper-consumeristic culture that, with the media that uh, idealizes youth, not as, you know, being great and fun, but as this, this ridiculous level of perfection that leaves no room to have a conversation about the positive sides of aging, um, the positive attributes of aging. Mm -hmm. uh, completely eliminates it. And as a result, we have culturally as a society allowed what I would call as rampant abuse of older adults, rampant violation of their civil rights. So that's the frame that I take when I look at building communities that are more age-friendly and more dementia-friendly. We have to have this shift and we have to help people come to terms with their own aging, their own mortality, and we have to create opportunities for more people to spend time with people of different ages so that they can't go through their whole life in complete isolation, never even experiencing older people in complete denial of their own aging and what they're going to experience. Mm -hmm. So how do we disrupt aging? 
because Bill likes to take on big challenges, I like to take on big challenges, very early on we decided, well, why not take the most scary, most feared part of aging? Loss of memory, loss of identity, loss of selfhood. Right. So we embraced the idea that we would disrupt this narrative around dementia. And we would say that you can live with, you can have this experience and you can enjoy life. And there is actually opportunity to live well with this experience of cognitive change and memory loss. And so we, we were inspired by, I was inspired by my own personal experience growing up, having friends who loved to have a child around them, who loved to interact and play with me, who were actually more capable of being with me in the moment than my own parents, than other older people. That is one of the skills that you have when you're older and you live with cognitive change. You are right present in that moment. So that was one of the positive attributes that inspired us. Mm -hmm. And then through my work in Seattle, uh, introduced to the power of improvisational theater, the incredible amount of fun that you can have with people living with memory loss, doing fun improv, um, your brain exploding with activity, uh, fun you can have around, obviously, music. People are becoming more and more familiar that everybody responds in an amazing way to music, whether you are cognitively typical or have cognitive change. Yes, absolutely. Yep, through the arts, lots of amazing arts programs here in Seattle, inspired by some great work done around the world. Amazing, great creative explosion late in life, whether you have cognitive change or not. There is well-documented neurological changes that have been well-written about. Great, just great explosion of creativity. So our mission was, let's take these positive parts of this and let's figure out ways to spread this and show the rest of the world and talk about this more. So through the evolving tour, the Changing Aging Tour, this theatrical production and road show that we've been building over the years, we actually convened some amazing world-class musicians, artists, some of our performers in the show. We came to Seattle and we recruited a bunch of my friends from the community who live with dementia and invited some other family members to come. And we had a three-day theatrical workshop where we used the principles of uh, uh, participatory design, appreciative inquiry, you know, improvisational design activities. And we guided them through this process, uh, just inviting them to imagine what the absolute most wonderful future would be for them, what kind of community, what kind of things they would like to do. And it incorporated all of their positive experiences things mm. that they have. It also incorporated all their, a lot of their negative experiences. We captured really heartbreaking stories about mm. some of the demeaning experiences that they had, getting their diagnosis, being you know, devastated by that, the fear, the loss. And what we did is we tied that together with some other compelling stories about human resilience and a performance designed to humanize the experience that people are most afraid of and to just show them that there's a different way to think about it. And most importantly, to show them that there's actually hope even with what is considered the most dreaded diagnosis, there's actually hope in what some, a lot of people experience is, is an even higher quality of life. When they shift into this experience, let go of a lot of the stress and the anxiety about their lives, shift into this experience, people have a higher quality of life. Wow. And so what, what happened after that? So this was a so. <laughs> performance that you created? Yes. So did you the, take that on the road? That's about yes. what you. Yes. So the you disrupt did. dementia movement is 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 based on a theatrical production called Disrupt Dementia. Okay. And so we've been touring the past two years with that as part of the show. So the Change Aging right. Tour, the current iteration, it changes year to year, is a two part performance. The first part is a Disrupt Dementia performance about human resilience, and then the second part is the doc, Dr. Bill Thomas's show, Life's Most Dangerous Game. Mm. which is about addressing ageism and coming to terms with your own human aging. So I will take this. So what has happened from this? Yeah. <laughs> I think you guys, you get, your listeners learned about Minka. Yeah. You learned about housing. Yeah. So that's, that's you what covered Dr. That. Thomas was talking about. Um, we, but we didn't talk so much about the Village of Hope. So That's what I want to get to. Yeah. So in the process of this work, traveling around, listening to people, we became passionate about addressing the issues they're talking about and we're passionate about building stronger communities. 
And so we, we had an idea to tackle both and Bill, this, you know, entrepreneur has come up with all kinds of things. He, he came up with the idea of these prefabricated, beautifully designed, accessible housing that we could build. And we decided we would couple that with our social mission and our community building. And so the first project that we did was this pilot project in Indiana this past year, uh, where we were invited by a community that saw our performance, was inspired by it, and the university said, will you work with us to help us become part of this movement? And so we spent a year with them. We built the model house, which people can see, the Minka model house. And then we started the process of designing a magic village. Mm -hmm. And out of this community design process, the community, not us, the community came up with this term magic, multi-ability, multi-generational, inclusive communities. Mm -hmm. That process is going on in Indiana, and we're working on a co-student elder housing to combine scholars and elders working together. And what's really exciting, as we've been developing this and writing about this and talking about this, other people have been hearing about it and have been pounding us saying, how do we get involved? How can we do magic? This is what we've been looking for. So one of those communities is uh, in Clearfield, Pennsylvania. A longtime Eden Alternative member, Kathy Gillespie, happens to head an area agency of aging in Pennsylvania. And she had been working for a long time to execute her dream of creating a dementia village in her community. Mm -hmm. So her area agency on aging actually specializes in housing and services. So they've been innovating in housing already and trying to address a very urgent need for better housing for people living with dementia with the goal of trying to keep them out of nursing homes, which were just not a great place for them to be. So Kathy had already acquired land and a, uh, uh, it was basically a decommissioned elementary school that she had envisioned as being the hub of this dementia village. And she was inspired by a project in the Netherlands called Hogvig that right. created this incredible, innovative community for people living with dementia that would try to realize all the best things that they would want in this community. And so Kathy looked at that and she thought, well, this is incredible. This is what we should do. Then she read about magic and has you know, known Bill for a long time and it clicked for her. She got it. She realized that it's not good enough to create the best possible environment to hide away people living with dementia. We gotta create new communities where they can remain in the community mm -hmm. and thrive and be part of the community. Right. So she called us up and said, will you work with us to make the first magic village of hope for people living with dementia to give people living with dementia hope? So we're about six months into that process of doing community design work to look at what the community in Clearfield would want to have. Uh, we're going to use the Minka system to build affordable housing, but they're going to be beautiful, fantastic houses. And we're going to use the elementary school to create kind of mixed services community center to create the types of things that people want in that community. I think the most exciting part of this project is that the community has recognized that the piece that the, the theme that they want embedded in this community is the arts. Mm. So being in a rural part of Pennsylvania, the thing that they, they felt like they can bring to this to really make magic happen is folk arts in this community. So arts, theater, music. And so that's the exciting part of what we're trying to develop is a community that's going to be not exclusively for people living with dementia, rich with people living with dementia, but other people, different ages and abilities as neighbors, aware of the experience that people have, knowledgeable about the experience that people living with dementia have, not experts, but aware of it, non-judgmental, and then all of them together, inspired and hopefully drawing the outside community in to a rich community that celebrates the arts and mm. helps people thrive through the arts. Wow, it sounds amazing, fantastic. Now, I'd love to hear a few more specifics about the Village of Hope. I'm trying to envision it. So how many people would be, so it sounds like it's, it's almost like a campus within a larger community, right? Yes, yeah. And it, it, so how it, many people would live like right on the campusy parts? Are we are we talking like 20, 100? So the first phase of the development, there's uh, 23 acres and we have an initial site plan that's just about approved. And there's room for about 60 homes. 
and it's going to be a mix, uh, mix in sizes. So it will be, you know, there'll be single occupancy, double occupancy. There'll be some townhouses. There'll be some family housing. So that the initial project will be a series of four pocket neighborhoods that, that will be a sort of mixed use so that you have not just people living with dementia, but people of different ages and families. Mm-hmm. It is rural. So there are some, there's some neighbors, but there's also some room to grow. So mm-hmm. there's another 25 acres up for grabs and we hope to expand into that area as well. Mm-hmm. And then will people ultimately apply? I, w- I would think this would be of interest to a lot of people. And I guess I'm wondering, will you sell the houses to individuals or do they rent from a sort of like bigger association to stay there? Yep. So the initial vision is to rent the houses. Mm-hmm. So primarily the organization will own the housing and these will be mostly rental it depends on the mix of financing. So how much is privately financed, how much we borrow, how much uh, philanthropic donations we can secure to achieve this, how much federal, state, county funding we can secure that ideally can go into making the rentals affordable. Mm-hmm. I think there has been, it's on the table as we expand, selling houses is definitely feasible, but the primary mission is to provide affordable rentals for people who are currently living in housing that is totally inadequate for their needs. Right, right. Well, that that is fantastic. I would imagine that lots of people listening are wishing that they could, you know, find or participate in something um, close to them, similarly. Because uh, you're right, a lot of people have asked about wanting to just find better communities and homes. Exactly. Because I think we have been, people like you and, and other experts have been emphasizing the importance of a, a supportive community you know, for your health and well-being, no matter what your age and ability, but that it especially makes a huge difference as we get older. And so people aren't just thinking about, you know, how do I put in the right grab bars in my house or something like that, you know, future-proof the house, yes. but but what is around me, right? Yes. How yes. do I make I think... what's around me better? Or do I find another community? Do I join a village? Exactly. Yeah. Now there are different strategies that you, you can take, you know, you know, there have been some positive trends in new urbanism and some recognition that we need to design communities a little bit more smartly than we did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where it was basically unleashed suburban sprawl and this, this vision that everybody wants is their own private house where you can drive your car into the garage and get into your house <laughs> and never even have to interact with your neighbors. So unfortunately, you know, we have a lot of that type of housing. And that's what some people want. So we have a lot of that. But unfortunately, we, you know, we only have only about 2% of the housing in America is actually designed to be accessible for people who need uh, accessible options, a zero-step entry and an accessible bathroom. 2% of the houses in the United States. Mm. Uh, it's, ri- it's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. So there are, there are emerging movements. Um, all of the folks who are passionate about age-friendly design are talking about new smart growth and talking about designing communities that have more of this missing middle housing. That is the important term. Understand that communities need to have diversity. So not every, not 100% of houses need to be optimized for aging, but you need a, a larger chunk of that. So you need that missing middle housing. And there's a growing movement the best, I think, most familiar term is called the pocket neighborhood movement, mm. um, designed by a good friend of ours, an architect on Whidbey Island near Seattle, who has been designing communities for the past 20 years, built around the idea that interacting with your neighbors is absolutely critical to the health of your community. So he's approached the building and the layouts of communities in ways that encourages interaction with your neighborhoods. So a pocket neighborhood development will be designed in a way that you have a large porch, not like a you know tiny doorway that's sort of hidden away, but a large porch that you can actually sit and do things on. And then you have shared community amenities, either a common house or a shared garden or a green space or a cooking barbecue space that subtly encourages interaction rather than designing communities that actually actively discourage interaction and result in a real erosion of community. Right, right. Yeah. Ah, I love it. What a totally fantastic idea. Now to come back to the village of hope. Yes. Um, I mean, I just, I love this idea of creating better communities that are inclusive and supportive of people who are living with dementia. And as 
as a geriatrician, I obviously, you know, personally take care of people who have often reached that stage mm-hmm. where they're not able to walk anymore, where they need help getting dressed, maybe getting to the bathroom. That's often when it becomes really hard for family if they had them to keep mm-hmm. supporting them. And so I was just wondering, will the Village of Hope also have a greenhouse or what, you know, or some kind of accommodations for people who have reached the stage where they need that level of help because uh, we were talking about with Dr. Thomas that it's it's so terrible to be uprooted from where you are, right? That's the, that is the vision is to, is to minimize that. So the way we're able to achieve that, uh, one of the principles we're, we're working towards is having, absolutely having the types of services and resources that people need to stay in their home and we're working with partners who provide those types of services. And that's part of my background as well, has been working to explore new ways of thinking about community and home care-based services mm-hmm. to really make it more accessible and more feasible. In the long-term vision, we're looking at what types of a, a clinic on-site and what type of acute care is needed. So rather than necessarily looking at possibly a, a greenhouse, um, possibly a setup that could require skilled nursing care, because it is absolutely a possible possibility that people will require that level of care at some point but reaching that balance where you can have you know home health provide as much of that as possible mm-hmm. and then a mix of the true pure vision of greenhouse which is residential housing that's in the community not outside of the community but you're, you know, part of your neighbors so that the folks who are requiring an intense level of care can have access to that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, yes. And I'm glad you mentioned home care because that is, you know, often what I see in the, you know, in, in the later time is that either people have to have someone coming into the home where they are providing a lot of hands-on care mm-hmm. or they move, which can be a challenging transition for them, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because yes. uh, especially if we have the supportive, wonderful community, then it's all the harder in a way to move and yes. leave it behind. Yes, that's absolutely the worst case. Whereas the people who are isolated in their big home for mm-hmm. years, sometimes moving to a facility in a way perks them up because could be they, a positive move because they have you know suddenly more social uh, encounters and engagement. But ideally, people would be living before that stage in a place where they were getting lots of social needs. The interesting um, thing is that we have so much information about the demographics of our communities. It's actually within our grasp to very a- accurately plan out what amount of services and what types of housing will be necessary. And so that's part of the process of designing an age-friendly community that can meet those needs. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I know the community is still being built. So when do you expect people will actually potentially be living in there? Probably in another few years at the earliest. Uh, no, we've already, they've already commissioned the first phase of housing. And so we hope to break ground this year. And uh, we very much, it, 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 there's an impetus to get this in motion. And, and so we would love to have the first pocket neighborhood being built this year, with people moving into it as we build out the community center. And that's one of the beautiful parts of doing smaller housing rather than sort of a big residential building is, you know, it takes like five years to build a big 100, 200 unit retirement or assisted living building, but with a mink at pocket neighborhoods, you know, it only takes a couple of days to get that house built. So right. once we can start breaking ground, we can, we can start building. You just have to plug in the utilities. That's probably what will take in longer. Yep, exactly. Uh-huh. Oh, exciting. So you might have people living there in a year. That is fantastic. Yes. Well, wonderful. Well, you mentioned also home care and that you and your sister or sisters, I wasn't sure which it was, own a home care agency in Montana. And as I was reading about some of your work, I saw something about your your agency sort of experimenting with newer technologies. And Dr. Thomas also mentioned how how he feels, you know, technology is is not the solution, but is an important mm-hmm. component. And so I was hoping you could maybe tell us a little bit about <laughs> how technology is going to fit into the village of, of hope or how otherwise you're uh, finding that it can be helpful for older adults or people with dementia. Absolutely. I don't want the, this to come off sounding the wrong way, but one of the reasons I launched this company was to sort of have a laboratory, to have a place to experiment and implement some of the ideas and the concepts that yeah. Bill has come up with that we're thinking about. So I'm not saying that these folks are our guinea pigs, but but we have been 
you know, actively trying to innovate and experiment. Well, they're so lucky to have somebody really thinking <laughs> proactively about how it could be done better. You know? Yes, exactly. So I have, uh, so two of my sisters, they're the ones doing, running the company, doing the hard work. They live in Missoula and uh, they spent their whole lives working in nursing homes and long-term care. So they're totally committed to uh, this approach that we've had of trying to create a new model of doing home care that moves away from a business that's based basically on profiting off of people's increasing dependence and mm -hmm. focusing instead on a business that profits off of increasing people's well-being, increasing their strength and their connection. And so we've been innovating different ways of trying to achieve that. Yes, about technology. We live in an age where there's so many exciting new tools and technologies, and that's been a big part of what we do. And Bill and I both are very active consulting with some of the biggest technology companies in the world looking to do better at designing mm -hmm. technologies for older adults. I will say that uh, the track record is very poor and there are not a lot of technologies that are beneficial. I could not point to any technology that really makes a big positive difference. Mm -hmm. um, the things that are, are, are promising, um, we have uh, we played around with tools like Amazon Dash Buttons to make it easier for folks to call for our level of services. So we work a lot inside of communities, retirement communities, where people have you know their life alert buttons where they can call for an emergency. Right. But you know, there's a lots of times where you need a connection and help with something that's not an emergency. You don't want to activate 911 or your family mm -hmm. network. But these are folks who just frankly can't can't use a smartphone can't really text. It's a little bit harder to use some of the apps and technology that are being tested in, in this in environment. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to create a way where we could create a mesh network of people who can push a button that basically says, um, I could use a little bit of help in a small increment. And so that's, that is very promising in terms of breaking away from the model where to run a sustainable home care business, you know, you got to kind of force people to pay for a big block of time. Right. Where a lot of times you're you're there for a certain urgent task, and then you're not really providing. I mean, the, we we like we we value the connection and the time together, but just in terms of sustainability, it's hard for families to sustain those big blocks of time. Right. So we're actively trying to build a network of people who are connected to us. They know us, and then they trust us. They can we can come in, pop in, and help out with things when they need it. And those are the you know the urgent things that can make the difference between being able to stay in your house or having that tough conversation with your family that it's just not working out and right. you might need to go move into an assisted living or someplace with a higher level of service. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great. I'll, uh, mention, I'll mention one other technology. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're uh, working to pilot a new prescription type, type of prescription pill dispenser oh. that is uh, connected to the cloud. The pills are preloaded in the disc by the pharmacist, mm -hmm. delivered to the house, Mm -hmm. To completely remove this tedious process rife with error where families try to coordinate all the pills and different dispensers, even smart dispensers, hand load it. And the purpose of this dispenser is to completely try to eliminate um, the risk of not complying with your prescription dr drug regimen. Mm -hmm. And it looks very promising. And what's really important about this is you you can't effectively reduce prescription drugs until you really get a grip on complying with your prescriptions. Um, so I think you're, as a geriatrician, you're familiar. I think a lot of families that listen to you are familiar with this, just like, ah, big bag of all these pills, uh, different doctors, different specialists, and this lack of coordination. And the result is, uh, the, the result of polypharmacy of taking too many prescription drugs is uh, extremely, you know, it's extremely risky. It is a high, uh, it's one of the leading causes of death. Yes, uh, and of, of emergency rooms and emergency room uh, hospital, hospitalizations. Yes, no, it's, a, it's insanely complicated. And the problem too is that then the, the clinicians have difficulty doing their work because it's not clear to them what the yeah. person actually took. And so somebody exactly. will come in and their blood pressure is high. And so they, they add another drug or crank up the dose. And really the problem was that they, they weren't taking it yes. reliably. So yeah, no, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more that it's, it's, uh, it's an it's, example of, it's an a, important issue of a, of a problem where I think technology can provide a solution mm -hmm. in other areas in terms of social connection and isolation, 
I've just frankly, I have not seen solutions that yeah. I feel like are really, they're not addressing the problem. They're re frankly reinforcing the problem. Right. Uh, you know, we need more human connection, more interaction, more mm -hmm. engagement. We need, you know, to live in an environment where we're interacting with people more, not mm -hmm. less. And unfortunately, the trends where I, I see technology leading in the opposite direction. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So promising. But yeah, I've followed it for a few years and uh, lots of ideas. But mm -hmm. but yes, many of them don't get at what seems to be the, the most important issues or are trying to, I think, do something that is not that viable. Like, as you said, replace social connection with technological yes. tools, yeah. which. So we'll, con we'll continue. We're always continuing to innovate and test. Minka mm -hmm. is just a great platform to have oh, a house yeah. where we can, you know, really easily uh, innovate and include smart home technologies, new technologies, and be, participate in that. But yeah, in answer to your question, uh, not a lot of things pop out to me as something worthy of saying, go try this. Right. Well, well, not yet, but maybe, you know, maybe with the Minka providing a good platform, we'll finally get to some things that you know, that are truly more helpful for certain, for certain things. Yeah, I hope so. Our, our model house at the, the University of Southern Indiana is going to be used as a house a implementation house to test smart home technologies. So we're going to throw our, throw their students at that and the elders there to see if they can test yeah. some of these products. And Great. Great. Well, it's been wonderful to hear what you've been working on and these fantastic projects with the Village of Hope and other. In closing, aside from the Village of Hope, and it sounds like you're going to do the tour again, anything else that you and Changing Aging are going to be prioritizing for, for 2019 or that you're especially excited about? We've got a lot. So stay tuned. Um, definitely, you can go to changingaging.org and read about what we're doing. In addition to the Village of Hope, a couple other exciting projects. So we have the Magic Village in Indiana, um, students and elders coming together. That, that's a no-brainer. That's going to be awesome. It's going to be very exciting to see that come together. Uh, we have two and maybe three projects in Colorado in the works. We're going to be doing Design Shred next month around the co concept of rural healing houses. So we're actually going to be working with a hospital in rural Colorado um, that wants to provide some housing specifically around folks uh, living with diabetes who are doing um, hyperbaric oxygen treatments, um, wound care treatments that require mm -hmm. a lot of hours, a lot of travel, a lot of dedicated hours. And so we're going to explore ways that a, a Minka home could be a real healing home to help make that more effective. And we're excited about that as a great kind of entryway into rural housing. Mm -hmm. So that's, that, that's probably going to be a big part of our focus in 2019. But every day we're talking to communities and folks that want to get involved. So we never know exactly where we're going to end up. Right. So if people listening want to get more involved in your efforts to change aging, disrupt dementia, fostering magic communities, other than visiting the Changing Aging site, any other suggestions on, on what they can do? Yes, get involved in your community. So mm. if you do not have an age-friendly community, a dementia-friendly community coalition, start one. Yeah. Reach out. So you're, you know, your AAA um, is a great place to start. The Area Agency on Aging, is it, any organization that's already providing community home-based services, they're a good anchor. Get started there. If you're passionate about dementia-friendly communities in particular, one of the best things that a community can adopt that doesn't cost any money, that's part of a great local movement is called Dementia Friends. So if mm. you Google Dementia Friends, it's an activity you can do as a dementia-friendly community to increase education and awareness and help reduce the stigma and the fear around dementia. So you sign up, your business can sign up, your organization can sign up, you can talk your, your city and having city employees sign up to become Dementia Friends. It's free, it's a great education experience to learn about living with dementia and it destigmatizes it and it can really make a big difference. So that's something I always promote. Great, great. Well, I love those recommendations. Get involved, right? So that's right. don't just visit Changing Aging, this although that's your, an excellent start. Future. Get involved and find out what's going around you and participate or help you know, get a ball rolling. It sounds like there are resources at Changing Aging to help people do that if they decide to. So, uh, well, Kevin, thank you so much. It has been just really wonderful to hear more about what you and Changing Aging have been doing. I'm super excited to see how this Village of Hope project turns out in your other projects. And so thank you so much for being on the show today to talk to us about it. Uh, thank you, Leslie, and for the great work you do uh, moving, uh, moving things forward. Thanks for having me on. 
And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.